Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for being here uh, to ABA Ultimate Showdown, a podcast promoting constructive, respectful, and professional discourse to advance the field of behavior analysis. I'm your host, Megan Miller, and 2022, I can't believe uh, that it's here. Um, So super exciting, though, because round 12 of our showdown is going to bring you our first all-guest debate. On the docket today is a debate about the best way to deliver higher education via online education or traditional learning. So our motion for today is higher education is ideally delivered in a traditional format. Dr. Katie Croce and Dr. Joe Novak are joining us. It has been awesome collaborating with both of you during this process. I really couldn't have asked for two more enthusiastic and well-diverse debaters on this topic. Uh, Before we start, I'd love for you both to tell us a little bit about yourselves. Let's start with Dr. Katie Croce, who will be debating the pro side of the debate, the traditional learning side. Dr. Croce, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, my name is Dr. Katie Croce, and I am full-time faculty at Felician University, which is located in Rutherford, New Jersey. Um, But I live in Pennsylvania, and I have practiced as behavior analyst in Pennsylvania for my entire career. I worked in public schools when I first started as behavior analyst, supporting uh, a variety of different types of students that had behavioral needs in the classroom, ultimately getting more and more niche supporting students diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Um, And then I went back to school uh, to get my doctoral degree and I started working at a university and I helped develop an autism center at uh, St. Joe's University, which is in Philadelphia, setting up social skills programs and sports programs and summer camp programs, um, a college support program, utilizing the principles of applied behavior analysis. And then I started teaching at the undergraduate level while I was at St. Joe's. Um, And then once I got my doctorate, I came back to public education as a program coordinator in a special ed program. And I got to support students with a variety of unique abilities across multiple school districts uh, here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And then ultimately landing in an inpatient hospital, supporting students' academic needs in an inpatient hospital, which was a really unique and different experience from being in the public school setting. And then um, I got the kind of itch to get back into teaching. And so I taught online for five years through the Chicago School of Professional Psychology in their ABA program. Uh, And then I was looking for a full-time faculty position and I was at Drexel University for a little while at their Autism Institute until I found my home here at Felician where I became full-time faculty and I get to teach in the undergraduate and graduate programs, which I just love because it's two different um, makeups of students, uh, some who are just kind of getting their feet wet and some that you know, know what they wanna do for the rest of their life. So two totally different experiences. Um, and then in my, in, that's my day job. And then in my, in my side job, in my night job, um, my very good friend, Janie Salter and I created a self-monitoring intervention called Self and Match. And we get to present um, around the world to people about the benefits of self-monitoring with a match component. Um, and we wrote a, a book and it's Self and Match and you can find it on Amazon if you're interested um, or you could check us out at selfandmatch.com. Um, but really our hope is to 
just let people know how valuable of an intervention self-monitoring is. Sometimes it's not the first intervention that people think about implementing with their clients. Um, and there's, I think, some misperceptions that self-monitoring is only for neurotypical individuals or people that don't have an intellectual disability or for middle and high school or adult learners. Um, but really, the research shows that self-monitoring is for everyone. Preschoolers can learn how to self-monitor. Individuals with intellectual disabilities can learn how to self-monitor. And then if you look at self-monitoring with a match component, that social accountability, it makes self-monitoring even more successful. So, you know, our passion is self-monitoring and we're just trying to get out there to spread the word. So that's what I do on my, on my nights and weekends when I'm not teaching. That's awesome. I definitely have to go to, I'll put a link in our show notes, but I want to get that book because I feel like one of my students, um, I could use that, you know, for, uh, a lot of, a lot more help of that on that with some of my students, but I feel like we come from the same background. I'm public school too. And then my husband went to Drexel and I went to TCNJ, which was right next to Bucks County. So <laughs> kind of crossing paths all over the place. So thank you so much. <laughs> that was really informative and I'm excited to look into that. Um, so, uh, all right. So representing the con side of the debate, supporting online education will be Dr. Joe Novak. Dr. Novak, you want to introduce yourself? Sure thing. Um, hello, everyone. So uh, I am Dr. Joe Novak. I am uh, credentialed as a board certified behavior analyst, a speech pathologist, and a resident certified assistive technology professional. Um, I received my bachelor's in psychology uh, from Seton Hall University. I got my master's in speech from Kane. And um, when I was going through my program at Kane, I I really decided that you know I was going to work with individuals with autism, but it was really important for me, given that I was going to work in the field of ABA with autism, that I was just as confident and capable in the field of applied behavior analysis as I was in the field of speech pathology. So actually, in my last year of coursework um, at Kane for speech, I also simultaneously did Penn State's BCBA program, uh, their their ABA course sequence, um, which was a a very exciting uh, year for me, obviously, doing both of those things at once, but um, it was actually not not a terrible thing. And um, I really, I love the education I got from, from Penn State um, and then kind of um, had both certificates pretty much at, at the same time, which in talking to a lot of other duly certified BCBA speech therapists is kind of a different track. A lot of them either are BCBAs and have the SLP or are SLPs and have BCBA, but I've never really known one without the other. It's just integral to kind of who I am. Um, I worked as an SLP down at Douglas Developmental Disability Center uh, in New Brunswick, uh, which is a fantastic uh, school. I can't say enough great things about it. Um, then I spent several years working at Bernard Township Public Schools in their ABA program, which is how I met uh, Jillian, uh, one of the people at the organization. Um, and then uh, most recently, I, in 2015, came to Reed Academy um, as an assistant director, and then later um, as my current role, which is director of clinical initiatives for Reed Autism Services. Um, and so really my, my role at Reed has been doing things like uh, developing an in-house curriculum, bringing speech therapy services into Reed, um, uh, starting electronic data collection, a whole bunch of other like uh, special projects and things like that. So I've really kind of um, enjoyed those, those opportunities. Um, also, my, my current initiative is that we are uh, looking to have a second school location in Franklin Lakes. Uh, Reed is located up in Oakland. And so 
um, we're very excited to be able to serve more individuals with autism. And um, another kind of uh, thing that I kind of helped to spearhead was bringing about um, someone with a lot of uh, qualification and credentialing in severe and challenging behavior. Um, so um, Dr. David Wilson recently joined Read Autism Services and is going to be able to uh, really support the need for intense uh, behavioral uh, needs. Um, so that's kind of my, my, my day job. I also have a night job. We, we, we obviously all like to have multiple jobs. Um, and so I, um, I teach through Kane University and um, I teach in the BCBA course sequence. I teach an educational and behavioral assessment course. Um, previously, I taught in the speech department. I had I created a uh, an ABA for the SLP course for um, uh, uh, speech grad students that ran for many years. And then um, I also teach through Endicott uh, online. And so that one I teach. Um, it's a communication disorders and autism type type course. Um, so definitely, I've had a number of of you know nice little opportunities. Um, I do have my own um, LLC, um, Advanced Behavior Communication Solutions, and um, primarily I only do things like some, some webinars and some occasional consultation. Um, I, I, for me, the most important thing I, I've learned in the past five years is how to say no. Um, so I've learned that there are a lot of, you know, that there, there are no shortage of wonderful opportunities, but um, keeping my, my mental health in place by not taking on more than I can do is definitely um, an, an important thing for me. Um, so yeah, so that, that's kind of a little bit about, about me. Yeah, given that, I really appreciate you being here because I feel like this is, a, this is a commitment and I, I'm so excited that you're here. When does your new uh, facility open? Um, so it's looking like September. Uh, we were uh, in the process of dealing with the DOE approval stuff, and you know, ESY was potentially in the cards, but September yeah. seems to be the the more probable uh, launch date. Wow. So you know, we'll I'm look so to, excited, yeah, for those families and for all of you. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, no, I I think it's going to be great. You know, there there are um, a number of students who we have not been able to accept simply because we do not have the room in the in in our school facility right. for it. Um, so I think it's going to be really helpful for us to have that second location. That's awesome. And our paths are similar too. I went, I got my master's from Kane and then I did my post-master's from Penn State. Did you do the hybrid? You did the hybrid program? So it was online except for uh, the fourth course. Was That's, that was me. I did the same thing. The conference. Yeah. And I, and um, <laughs> it was, it was really great. And I, I remember like having Brian Iwata talk to me about FA yeah. and I had, and I mean, I think we were actually pretty similar in the year because I graduated in 2009 from Penn State's okay. program, right? I, we were, I was 2014. So I was a little bit yeah, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I did. I, I, I went the long route. I, I don't know. I, I did the whole master's and then I did, you know, like I went, out of, so I spent yeah. a lot more time than I probably needed to. <laughs> yeah, no, but it was it was honestly it was it was a, it was a great program, and um, obviously when we get into our initial uh, talk, I'll kind of talk a little bit about my experience with with coursework and in, in, in online. Um, but yeah, it was it was a pretty fulfilling thing. One thing I did not mention, and um, is uh, after all of this, I did decide I decided to go back to my doctorate in special education uh, from Nova Southeastern. And so for me, I felt like you know being in the field of education. I wanted a degree in education, so that was part of why I kind of went went down that that road, um, and you know went through an, an online program, and I'll 
talk about that a little bit too a little bit later. That's awesome. So, That's so great. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, and we'll include a link to your consultation to your consultation uh, program too. Yes. Katie. I wanted to make a connection too because I also did Penn State's online autism certificate. So we, we all have a Penn State. <laughs> That's so funny. I did. Did you guys go to the the creamery? Oh yes. my god! Great ice cream. Go to the <laughs> it is a mandatory thing. <laughs> I think it's actually in the course work that you cannot pass unless mm -hmm. you go to the cleaning. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> all right, awesome. So, um, all right, we're going okay. to thank you so much, both. Oh, go ahead, Katie. Oh, can I add one more thing? Too? Yeah, yeah. Um, just because, like, Joe, you mentioned something that for me rings so close to home that when I went to, I knew that I wanted to be a behavior analyst. And so I went immediately to get my master's in ABA from Temple University. But then I didn't necessarily know immediately that I was going to go back and get my doctorate. But then once I started getting that like bug to go back to school, I contemplated, you know, do I pursue a, a doctorate in applied behavior analysis or psychology or education? And I ultimately ended up following, you know, kind of a similar path where I found a program at St. Joe's University. It was a doctorate in educational leadership. And it was such a great program because it was an interdisciplinary program. And we had folks who were pursuing, you know, behavior analysis like me and folks that were SLPs and folks that were superintendents and folks that were running nonprofits and folks that were working in higher ed. And I felt like it really prepared me to be in higher education and like in a leadership role, um, doing behavior analytic work, because you get like a little different perspective than if you just did a traditional full doctorate in applied behavior analysis. Not that there's anything wrong with those yep. folks that decide to go that track, but I think having yeah. that like broad lens was really important to me. And it sounds like that was kind of a similar focus for you too. Yep. I would, I would agree hundred percent with that. That's awesome. I'll have to pick both your brains maybe one day when I go back for my doctorate. And yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, just a little housekeeping before we start. Um, like I mentioned, the motion for this debate is going to be higher education is ideally delivered in a traditional format. Um, and, you know, we're all in ABA. We know super solid de operational de definitions are key. So I want to kind of get on the same page with terminology before we start. We kind of landed on the term traditional learning um, to encompass in-person coursework. So, you know, like being on campus, walking into a classroom, you know, having to get dressed out of your pajamas or, you know, or not as if you're an undergrad, when I, I was an undergrad, I always wore my pajama pants to school. Um, all right, we decided on the term online education that will encompass all types of remote education, distance learning, or virtual instruction. Um, Singe and Thurman in 2019 defined online learning as learning experiences using various devices such as smartphones or computers um, over the internet. And I'm gonna butcher these um, pronunciations, but uh, Libison, Azudine, uh, Idris, Rahman, and Umar 2021 define two modes of delivery for online learning. The first is synchronous online learning, um, which is basically the learning process happening in real time, which requires the instructor and students to engage at the same time, even though they're, you know, in two different locations. And the second is asynchronous online learning, and that doesn't require real-time interaction. That content's often pre-recorded. Um, you know, you can download things, um, continuing education courses like that as well. Um, and the instructor sets up assignments and then assessments, and then the students kind of follow on their own 
on their own terms. If you guys want to go into when you talk, uh, when you speak, you want to go into that more, you, you're more than welcome. But I just kind of wanted to give like a little bit of an overview. Um, both pro and con sides may also refer to hybrid courses and programs. Hybrid instruction kind of includes elements of both traditional learning and online education, kind of like that Penn State program we had. You know, I think I had four courses because I was on the, the next um, task list than you. So I had four courses online and then I had my fifth course was, was in person. Um, so as, uh, doctors Novak and Croce discussed this topic, these are kind of the definitions that, that, uh, we kind of all agreed, uh, so that we were all kind of on the same page. Um, so debate specifics, we're going to have a coin toss that's going to determine speaking order. Each debater will have equal opportunities to speak and we'll have an opportunity to ask and respond to questions, uh, both from each other and then from myself and, um, some of our, uh, clinical staff. If you're interested in learning more about the debate format that we use, just check out our show notes. I'll put it in there um, or just listen to our podcast introductory episode. Um, we want to emphasize our most important modification to traditional debate formats. There is neither a winner nor a loser. Um, really, our intention is to present a different point of view of a controversial topic that you may not have previously considered. Um, so we're aiming to disseminate the science in kind of a constructive way by sharing knowledge and respect and, you know, carry this through your whole lives with, you know, families and holidays. And Okay. So, um, all right, enough of me bantering. Um, all right, we're going to start with a coin toss. The winner is going to get to choose whether to speak first or second. Um, heads is going to go to Katie representing the pro side and tails is going to go to Joe representing the con side. So hold on. I have my little pointer. All right. It is heads. So, uh, Dr. Hirsch, Katie. <laughs> okay. Am I going to get us started here? All right. Um, hold on one sec. So you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So um, Katie's going to speak first with the pro side and give her opening remarks. And just remember the, the motion is that higher education is ideally delivered in a traditional format. So Katie, you're ready. You're good. I'm All ready. right. Take it away. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that is the general perception that higher education is, you know, better delivered in a traditional format. Um, and so from my personal experience as an undergraduate, I went in person to class and I met some of my best friends in my classes and we met each other in the quad and walked to class together and made sure that we got there on time and reminded each other when assignments were due and we studied together and, you know, we used each other as a support. Um, and so I, I think that's one big benefit of uh, traditional learning is that sense of community, those connections that you build from meeting the people in your class, people that maybe you wouldn't have interacted with if you didn't sit next to them and you didn't have to be in the same room with them for three hours every week for 16 weeks in a row. Um, so those strong connections, I think, are you know one of the traditional hallmarks of traditional in-person instruction. Those, that ability for um, students to really get comfortable, not only with themselves, but with their faculty members and with their classmates, so that they're more willing to participate and speak out about their, you know, their feelings or their opinions. Um, and they have that time and that, that comfortability to really be able to be themselves in the classroom. And as they're developing that professional um, connection with their peers, they're also learning how to develop stronger relationships and collaboration. And in the field of behavior analysis, I think that is one of the critical components to being a successful behavior analyst is that ability to 
listen to what people are saying. So if you have parents or teachers or, you know, others that you're supporting coming to you for help, you have to be a good listener and you have to be able to hear from their perspective what the struggles are. Um, and so being in person with a class full of peers and of faculty members really gives you that practice that you need to be, you know, a really good listener and also to, um, to be able to use your observational skills, right? In behavior analysis, we observe behaviors, right? We, we write operational definitions. Um, we're able to see in the moment people's reactions to things that we say, to the way that we, you know, hold ourselves, our body language in a way that may not necessarily always come through in online learning. Um, the other piece of, you know, those connections comes back to organic discussion, I think happens a lot more naturally in in-person learning, because as I say something, it can trigger a thought in your mind and you make a connection and you're able to respond in the moment. And so in behavior analysis, you know, we talk about that errorless teaching, right? And making sure that there's kind of fast paced instruction. Um, and that's what happens naturally in a classroom discussion. Somebody says something, somebody else responds, that triggers a thought in another peer's mind, they are more likely to um, respond and make those personal connections. And as you find more personal connections um, and you give each other that kind of uh, positive feedback, we're like, yes, you know, I agree with what you're saying, or, you know, I see it from this perspective. What about this? Um, you're helping to, you know, increase that social connection um, and making those kind of experiences stronger. The other piece of that is the networking that happens in in-person um, instruction. Uh, as you become familiar with your peers, you learn about where they work, you learn about what they like, what they don't like. And then if opportunities come about and they have an, you know, an opening at their organization, they can share that immediately with you. And then you have an immediate connection who can be a reference for you within that organization. Um, so, you know, there's, I think lots of kind of connection and collaboration benefits for that in-person learning. Um, and then as far as kind of from the academic perspective, hearing that immediate and direct feedback from your faculty members of like, yes, you, you've got it, that's, that's exactly right. Or, you know, hearing from your peers, seeing those facial expressions, those nods up and down, that immediate feedback is really helpful. It's also helpful if you don't understand your faculty members and your peers can see that and then they can provide multiple exemplars on the spot, um, which is not always as, um, doable in online learning where you can't see that immediate feedback. Um, you can you can check for understanding in a way that is a little bit more natural than you would in an online format. Um, and it also helps people to be able to ask questions in the moment. If they don't understand, they don't have to wait to get an email back from you. They can ask immediately if there's questions um, so that they can, you know, understand the content. And then I think, you know, there's a lot of benefits to the types of instruction that can happen, right? You have learners that don't just learn uh, auditorily. They need those visual supports. They need to have... Um, the written supports, they need to be hands-on. You know, I, I used to uh, tell my students that you definitely want to make sure that you have a behavior analyst that has lots of good hands-on experience the same way that you would go to a dentist that had hands-on experience, right? You want to make sure that they have been working in someone's mouth before they start drilling in yours. Um, and that's <laughs> the same thing with behavior analysis, right? You want to make sure that 
you are um, working with somebody who has hands-on experience so that when they're in the moment and you're teaching them how to collect data, you're teaching them how to do an assessment, you're teaching them how to run a token economy, they can almost hand over hand provide you with instruction on how to collect that data, how to implement that token economy. Um, and some people really benefit from that hands-on instruction and that kind of immediate modeling uh, from, their, um, from their faculty members and not only from their faculty members, but from their peers as well. So, you know, I think that there's lots of um, kind of social academic um, benefits for that in-person learning. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the, the other real benefit to in-person learning is that social accountability, that routine of coming into class consistently from week to week. Um, if you're a procrastinator, if you are somebody that, you know, needs to have a cheerleader in your corner, having that in-person instruction where you know that you're going to see your faculty member. And if you don't come to class, they're going to notice and they're going to reach out to you and, and ask, you know, where were you? Why were you late? Why didn't you let me know? Um, that person to, you know, be the squeaky wheel. Remember, there's an assignment due. Remember, you know, even though in college, you know, you're, you, you are provided with your syllabus and your faculty don't have to tell you from week to week when everything is due because everything is there. Most strong faculty will tell you that reminder, there's an exam next week. Remember, keep working on your term papers that are due at the end of the semester. Um, and there's somebody there to motivate you and immediate motivation. And so, you know, I think if you're the type of learner that needs that social accountability, needs that routine and structure online, online learning might not be the environment that maybe you'll be most successful in. So a traditional learning environment, um, you know, really would be beneficial to uh, learners that maybe don't have that internal motivation to keep them moving throughout um, a self-paced type program. So I think those are some of like the, the highlights that I wanted to just get us started with for yeah. tonight's conversation. That's, you brought up so many points that I hadn't thought about. One being interacting, practicing in-person interactions, because I feel like that's such a skill that, you know, isn't explicitly taught all the time, but is completely necessary for, you know, interacting with, with parents and families and yeah. um, clients. So. That disposition is so critical. And, you know, it's not necessarily something that we focus um, a ton on in our field. I mean, it is a part of our task list in some capacity, but, you know, if you don't have a approachable disposition as a behavior analyst, it's going to be really hard to yeah. develop those relationships to help support your clients. And right. so the and up -up back, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I always tell the students, um, you know, my goal is to make you a behavior analyst that everyone wants to work with right? There That's are, great goal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely behavior analysts that teachers would say like, oh, I'm so glad you're my behavior analyst and not so-and-so. And I'd be like, oh, I'm so glad I'm here to help you. But <laughs> I don't ever want them to say that about my students. I want them always right. to say, you know, that's the behavior analyst I want to work with because they're going to work with me. They're going to meet me where I am. And we have to recognize, yes, we're the experts in behavior analysis, but they're the experts in their home, in their classrooms, with their children. And so we have to, the same thing we do with our students. We, we need our, you know, our clients and our students 
where they're at and we shape their behavior, we have to do the same thing when we walk into people's homes or classrooms or clinics. We're not the experts of their environment, we're the experts in our field and we'll help them be more successful by using our principles of behavior analysis, so. Awesome, thank you so much, Katie. Yeah. Hey, I'm just gonna jump in and interrupt real quickly. Just wanted to let you know, ABA Ultimate Showdown's parent company, Graham Behavior Services, is an approved ACE provider, and a bunch of our rounds are now counting for continuing education credits. We also have asynchronous CEs on our website, grahambehaviorservices.com. They're all reasonably priced, help you reach that magic 32 hours, and your support's going to allow us to keep bringing you quality, thought-provoking content. So thank you, thank you, thank you, grahambehaviorservices.com. All right, so now we're going to move on to Joe, who will give the opening remarks representing the con side of the debate. So again, the motion is higher education is ideally delivered in a traditional format. So take it away, Joe. Okay, um, so I first kind of have to give a, a really big caveat to all this, which is that I think that um, online learning can obviously look extremely different depending on the kind of online learning type that we are talking about. So whether or not it is synchronous versus a asynchronous and so for instance i was i was listening to a little bit of, of katie's opening thoughts and one um one thought in my head is you know i think if you were looking at things like say synchronous learning where you had say a live lecture every you know every every week or so you could accomplish many of those same things that were described as being beneficial for in-person learning things like um, observing people's body language. I mean, look at the, 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 the conversation that we're having right now. We are doing this and we are far away from one another, but we are having a robust, exciting yeah. discussion. We're bouncing back. And so I think, you know, it really does have to do, I think, with the, the format. Um, you know, just for a little bit of background and perspective. So um, I've taken online courses from Kane, Penn State, East Carolina, Nova Southeastern, and Rutgers for my supervisor, sir. And every single class, every single university, my experience of online has been extremely different. Um, I had experiences such as at Penn State, where we had videos of lectures on DVDs with PowerPoints. I've had other experiences where it was pretty much a self-paced uh, type of a course, and there was minimal interaction. And then I've had occasional situations where there's a lecture every two or three weeks. So I've kind of had the whole gamut of, of different courses from the student experience. As a professor, um, as I mentioned before, I teach at Endicott. Um, the course kind of was laid out when I took it over and it is very much like a self-paced type type course. Um, you know, there are discussions that will happen in, in discussion board as well as assignments that, that get completed. I will weigh in on those assignments and weigh in on the discussions, but um, by and large, I think things, you know, there's not a lot of Im improvisation, which I guess is almost what, what Katie is kind of talking about, that, that, that more natural flow that, that, that would tend to happen. Right. Um, at Kane, um, you know, I, I teach uh, in-person courses, but probably every class I've ever taught, there's at least a couple times during a semester where I do have an online course, an, an online lecture. And um, it's typically a live lecture done via a, a video conferencing mean, or it's something like a pre-recorded lecture. Um, and um, so I think for me, again, it really does come back to, to the format of, of learning. And um, 
I think that's one of the greatest challenges for, for students as they're trying to assess whether or not online learning is, is, is right for them. Because, you know, I, I hear the point about people who need more kind of social accountability. And I think it's very, very well taken that those individual that online learning is not really for everyone. I think we've discovered this with, you know, obviously COVID and how it's impacted uh, student services. Um, we definitely recognize that there are some students for whom online learning is, is fantastic and others for whom it is really not not so much. Um, there's also a difference oftentimes I would say between undergrad and, and graduate in terms of where people are in terms of their maturity and ability to handle certain kinds of coursework. Primarily, I have worked with graduate level students. So that is the, the lens that I'm approaching this from when I you know particularly say that I think online learning can be a, a beneficial means. And, and I would actually argue that online learning can be a superior method of learning for a, a variety of reasons. Um, We'll obviously get, get into these things a little bit more, but um, I think there, there are two main features of online learning that um, can really be, be beneficial for, for students. Um, the first is the flexibility of online learning. Um, it is uh, typically more on demand, and even in cases where it is synchronous, many times uh, professors will ensure that those lectures are we recorded. Um, for me, there is nothing more beneficial than having a recorded lecture because, and this kind of ties into the second uh, point or idea, which is that, you know, in today's day and age, we are all multitasking. We are, we have short attention spans. It is really hard to sit in a two and a half hour in-person lecture and have no deviation and not to be on my computer or on my phone or thinking about this, you know, because our brains are somewhere else. And so we will often miss key content. And, you know, you will find that students are not necessarily likely to ask a professor to repeat something. They'll just try to figure it out. And, and I think one of the real benefits of, of online learning again, depending on format, if it's say synchronous that is recorded, is you have the ability to go back and replay that lecture and listen to it again and again until you really start to understand it. And so um, that to me is, is a really tremendous benefit. Um, I also think that, you know, online learning can match the, the way that, to, that, that today's world looks in terms of, you know, that they tend to be more text-based in terms of how they converse. They, they tend to like being able to be more uh, anonymous in the way that they respond. Um, when I teach online, I incorporate polling as a feature and polling is done in a way that is anonymous from the perspective of the whole class seeing it, but I can see how the student performs. And I get more information when I teach online than I get in person. Because if I ask a question in person, I get three people who raise their hand and no one else does anything. If I ask a person, if I ask a question online with a forced poll, I get every single person in my class responds and I see exactly how they respond and they can't see how their classmates respond. So they, so you, you eliminate the bias of people looking around and seeing, oh, I guess they said that I should respond now, which is a genuine thing. And, and people who feel uncomfortable with volunteering that, that, that information, they really can benefit from, from that, that, um, that different format that online can can provide um, and then the other big thing is 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 time um, I think time is our most valuable asset in, in in life and it is a thing that we don't have enough of that everyone wants more of from us and to me um, time is typically I would say reclaimed with online learning as opposed to in-person learning the, the, the amount of time 
I would argue that that can go down the drain in terms of driving to the university, parking the car, going back, not to mention the agi the agitation, the stress, the frustration. I mean, it, it and I'm sorry for Kane, it, it does cause me a lot of frustration on, on Morris Avenue. It just it does, but the traffic um, there is I, insane. <laughs> it is, and 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 it's also it's time. It's time that does not need to to be wasted because if I can accomplish things in the exact same way um, in a virtual format, then why would I not want to reclaim that time whenever I am able to? Um, I think you know, and and just in in fairness to to observe the the, the pro side, um, the the hands on piece that is the one that is uh really objectively hard to argue against you know you can do things like provide videos you can have someone do something record and then submit it as a recording but yeah, that tends not to happen um and i think this does tie into the to the last really observation which is that um you know uh, professors typically don't go to school to learn how to profess. So you can have uh, individuals who, you know, may have a strong clinical background and no, no research background or a strong research background and, and no clinical background. And whether they're teaching in person or virtual, they can be good or not very good. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's an intersection of a whole lot of different things. So really, I think it's kind of what is the ideal scenario look like and, and, I think it ultimately becomes a discussion about context and, and uh, under what conditions can we see this type of learning be effective for individuals. That was so well stated. I feel like um, you brought up so many good, again, points that I hadn't thought about that. Um, first of all, I love the polls. <laughs> I always love taking polls. So I feel like your students must love that too. But also that, that you know, professors often don't have instruction on teaching strategies. And as a former teacher, I often see that in the continuing education courses. I'm like, oh, we could have done this so much more efficiently if we did like this specific teaching strategy. So that's that's a really good point. Thank you so much again, Joe. That was awesome. Um, the next segment of our debate is the crossfire. Both sides will have the opportunity to ask and respond to each other's questions. We're going to begin with a question from Katie representing the pro side of the motion. Um, Joe representing the con side will answer and then follow up with um, a question of his own. And then we'll kind of keep that alternating pattern until we run out of questions. And then we'll go into the next section. So um, just debaters, please make sure you answer the question to the best of your ability, ask for clarification if you need to, and as always, keep it respectful. So take it away, Katie. Yeah. Um, so Joe, I know that you had mentioned, um, you know, for some of the students not being comfortable um, public speaking, and so you incorporate polls into your um, classrooms, and, and obviously that can be done in person as well. Um, but I think one of the the skills of a behavior analyst is being able to speak in public and being able to give feedback in the moment, right? Because when we're called in, we're called in not because things are going well. We're often called in because there's a problem going on somewhere. And so if we don't teach our students to be able to speak in public and practice doing that in a comfortable environment where they feel supported by their peers and their faculty, you know, my question is, you know, are we really setting them up to perform as practitioners when they finish their programs? And, you know, I think that kind of goes along with the thoughts of, of disposition. You know, how do we really get to see their disposition if not through their own 
words, their, their vocal abilities, not necessarily their anonymous, right? Because how people respond anonymously can be very different than the way that they respond face-to-face -face with somebody. Okay. Great, great question. Um, so a couple of thoughts. One is um, I view polling as an example, as, as one tool. So um, to me, and I guess really it comes, it comes back to kind of what, what is my ideal uh, vision of what online learning should look like. And um, I think it, it would ideally be a combination of synchronous and asynchronous activities. I don't think a person necessarily needs to have say a, a weekly lecture that they attend live. I think they could observe some pre-recorded lectures. They could read journal articles. There's a variety of different sorts of things. Um, within synchronous lectures, I think there are opportunities to combine things like polling with having students uh, speak on video or, or on microphone. Uh, just as an aside, one thing I've noticed is um, students very, very seldomly will turn on their camera in, in classes. And at Kane, I know it's not, we, we cannot require them to do that. Um, so they will often, I will often not see, see their faces, which I will say is one thing I, I don't love. I, I would like to be able to kind of see, see their faces. I think that's helpful for feedback. Um, similarly, however, I do, you know, encourage students to use, you know, things like thumbs up or put in comments in the chat. And um, I think what, what, I, what I find is, is interesting is that I get um, about the same amount and probably more actual feedback on lectures in that online format. Um, again, I, I think because, and it's, there just seems to be a bit of a, 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 a comfort there for students in, in the way that they're able to, to respond. Um, I do agree with you in terms of the need to develop uh, things like individuals, vocal, verbal presentations um, is in, in the same way that I think it's also incredibly important that we develop their ability to communicate in a written format from a more professional and report type style approach. Um, so to me, I think that again goes back to, well, what are the expectations of, of the course? You know, I've had uh, plenty of in-person classes that have had absolutely no expectation whatsoever of any sort of presentation or any sort of demonstration of vocal or verbal behavior. So I think, um, I think it's more about what is the nature of the course and the skill set of the professor in terms of how do they get those things than, than the format. I think that the format is a less relevant feature than the actual quality of the person who is doing the teaching. Um, I also don't think it necessarily has to be something that gets addressed in every single course. I don't think every single course needs to have a focus on um, a person's vocal, vocal verbal repertoire. So for instance, if it's a, you know, basics of ABA, um, yes, it is helpful to hear what someone can say in terms of can they repeat back information and do they have that true understanding, but I think you could assess that fairly decently in a, in a written format. Um, but I do think there are other courses where it really is important to hear someone kind of actively work through those things, uh, but I, I would maintain that those still could be done in a, in a, in a synchronous uh, format just online. Yeah, and, and I, I don't disagree. I think that there's so many ways that we can assess our students' verbal and written abilities. 
what I found in my classes, because I do know that, you know, when folks are new to this profession, they might not be comfortable using all the technical jargon. But what I found for folks that do have some of that kind of public anxiety is I offer them the option to record themselves. And so then they can re-record themselves a hundred times if they'd like to until, you know, they have a product that they feel confident about. And I'm happy to, you know, let students present their presentations in that format as well. If that, you know, helps open the door for them to just feel comfortable sharing. Um, and the other thing that I was going to say is um, when it comes to, like you said, you know, those kind of early courses and just basic concepts and principles, you know, having that rote memorization, I think we can assess in lots of different ways, but in a consultation course, um, a collaboration course, I think that's a place where, you know, to get that practice and that public speaking is, is so crucial for our field because we, we have to kind of toe the line of using that language that's too technical versus, you know, the language that is going to make people feel welcomed and, you know, feel like we're supporting them. Um, so, you know, I think that there is that, that balance. Um, but I think you're right. Like in, if it's synchronous, you have that ability to see them. Um, oh, that was the other thing I was going to say. So at Felician University, I should have said this, but I didn't earlier, but we do offer our courses in person and through synch synchronous learning, but we do mm. require our students to keep their cameras on so that we have a, a policy. If you're going to participate through this synchronous instruction, you must keep your camera on unless you oh, have to, you know, <clears throat> to go to the bathroom or, you know, something like you would in a normal like class, you would get up and you would leave and then come back. Yeah. Um, but that is one. I of think our that's great. Honestly. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, I, I, I guess I kind of understand that the policy that exists for the other school, but I, yeah, I, I, I like that idea. Um, what I do as a means to do attendance is, um, you know, I, and, and to check active engagement is I do use that, that polling feature. And sometimes I'll, it'll be a really thought provoking question. And sometimes it'll be a fairly arbitrary question just to make sure people are responding. Um, and that'll tell me essentially some measure of, of if they're paying attention. You know, one, one, one additional thought is I think, um, I've, I, I think I've heard some people kind of give, give criticism to um, online learning because you don't have as much of a measure of, of attention because you don't necessarily see the person with you. And, you know, um, and I would just kind of counter my, my own hypothetical argument by saying that having taught many a class in person, I have also seen many instances where people are not paying attention despite the fact that they're physically there um, and, and even things like eye contact, you know, and, and I have this discussion with my, with my students all the time about, you know, is eye contact an indicator of attention? Attention is, a, is something that we can conclude after the fact based on responding. Attention is nothing in and of itself. It's simply that if someone responded correctly, then I can conclude that they were paying attention. But just because my students are looking at, looking me, at me does not mean in any way, shape, or form that they are paying attention to Correct. me. Yeah. So I, I found that in, in that regard that you know, um, just because someone's in person, like I, I don't find that that would necessarily indicate any more probability of, of attending. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think what you said too about expectations for classrooms is so important. And it's something that 
um, I talk about with my students all the time. Every semester at the beginning of the semester, whether I teach in person or in a synchronous format like this, we go over classroom expectations, even though they're sometimes adult learners in our graduate programs. But what does it mean to I talk about being respectful and following directions and being prepared? You know, what does that look like for our learning environment? Um, and I think that's like what Megan said, when you go to a professional development and you're like, wow, these people are definitely not teachers. They're experts in their area, but not don't know how to, you know, have classroom management. Those teaching strategies, the simple classroom expectations is so simple, yet sometimes over missed, but it really can set the tone, like you said, Joe, for success for the students. So if my expectation is that you will respond to your discussion board post you know, three times during the course of the week, first response by Wednesday, response to your peers by Friday, follow-up responses by Sunday, you're setting those clear expectations versus leaving it open-ended. And I think faculty don't always know how to use that to their advantage to increase that engagement, whether they're in-person or teaching, you know, online, synchronous, asynchronous. And I think, you know, the, the COVID pandemic, I think, exposed the fact that there are then not everyone is equipped to teach in, in an online format and they don't have that skill set necessarily and they may struggle significantly with, with doing so and even uh, even like an, an example that, that you're giving about the discussion boards is a great one you know when, when a, a person asks a question that has a simple yes no answer or a very clear answer and then students are, are expected to respond to their classmates about a question that there is no debate over. Why? Why are we doing that? It is, it is incredibly robotic and rote and it completely misses the boat. Why, why would you do it? So to me, it's like, if you're gonna have students respond and have to respond to a classmate, then have it be something interesting that can at least be some sort of a, a, an experience that a person had and then, it, then it's relevant. But it's literally like, okay, here's the, definition of reinforcement. Oh, that's great. I love how you define reinforcement. I also define re I And so things like that give online learning a bad name, honestly. And so I think it, it really does come back to that, that professors need to be trained in online learning because clearly it's not going away. I think if anything, COVID has accelerated the fact that virtual and online learning is here and it's here to stay. And I don't think every program is gonna go online, but more and more programs are. You know, for me, for me, when I decided to go back to get my doctorate, I decided that I needed an online program. I could not do an in-person program, not because I didn't want to learn, but because I could not sit there and spend hours every week commuting back and forth and sitting in that room. I needed to be in a more comfortable environment in order to learn. And so for me, I did, and I got through my program and came out with my knowledge and everything was great. Um, so yeah, I think it's... Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things we could kind of talk about related to all this stuff. <clears throat> and that flexibility that you talked mm. about, um, you know, I, I think that that's probably one of the biggest um, benefits of, you know, online learning, um, because in our field, we are a helping profession, right? And so, as you mentioned in your introduction, you know, the, one of the biggest things that you learned was to kind of say no and um, not take on too much, but when you're new in our field, um, you want to help. That is the reason that you're getting into this field. And I think what a benefit that I see to that online learning and having that flexibility is teaching students 
who will be practitioners one day, the balance between life and work. Um, and I, I think that's something that, you know, we take for granted and we don't spend enough time on that self-care piece. And I think that, you know, is a huge advantage to online learning, whether it be synchronous or asynchronous instruction is that ability to teach people from a, a very early stage in their career, that, that balance, that, that professional and personal self-care. Um, I was just, I, I, when you were talk, both talking about eye contact, I feel like that definitely translates to develop and like attending behaviors translates to developing programs too. So like that correlation between, you know, what are your own attending behaviors and then how are you going to program for that when you're working with clients? Um, and then there's always, if you're talking about, you know, educational pedagogy, you can bring the debate format into your, into your classrooms. And I feel like then you're, you're uh -huh. talking about those, you know, controversial topics in like a respectful way, which I feel like um, a lot of our population maybe needs a little bit of help doing respectfully. And then I had one other question and I struggle with this for in-person learning. And so I'm open mm -hmm. to any ideas for, from, you know, your perspective too, you know, what do we do about those students who don't have that self-motivation because they exist in both programs in in-person learning and in online learning, the students that are, you know, disorganized, the students that maybe are graduate students that don't know the technology as well as the, you know, um, traditional undergraduates understand and use technology to their advantage. Um, you know, how do we engage them? How do we motivate them? How do we bring some organization into their lives and make them feel comfortable with the technology? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, well, I think for one thing, we have to um, make sure everyone has a really strong manned repertoire because our sometimes our adults, we, we don't always ask for help. We don't always ask for help when we need it. And we try to struggle through things, I think, because we want to show that we can do something and that we want to show that we can persevere and that, you know, we don't need to call in for help. But I think there's a lot of value in, in admitting when you are a bit over your head with something. Um, I think this again comes down to expectations and the way that a professor can kind of help to establish a, a, um, a, a routine and can provide guidance on things. So for instance, um, I just had my first class yesterday for Kane for the semester and uh, Kane is going virtual for the first two weeks. So, um, you know, we are obviously virtual. And so, you know, in my first class, I review the syllabus, I review Blackboard, I have screen share up. So I'm showing them as I'm clicking through sections of Blackboard, I'm giving clear explanations about the assignments, um, you know, checking for understanding in a general sense of, you know, the, does anyone have any questions, which I know is the worst check for understanding because no one ever has any questions. So, uh, but no, I, I think that things like that can help in terms of upfront uh, establishing those things. Um, if it was, you know, and I, I kind of have to stick with the online for most of my response pieces, um, you know, if someone was going into an online program, there should be, in my opinion, some sort of an orientation to technology course. Um, you know, I know for, uh, for some of the classes I've taken or, or some of the programs I've been in, they'll have like a, um, 
orientation to, to, to Blackboard or Canvas or things like that, that that a person has to go through. In terms of the organization, um, that's a that's a tougher one, and that but I think it's important because it obviously transcends the the academic program. If they are a disorganized mess in the academic program, they're probably going to be disorganized mess in their job site. And as a BCBA, um, that is not a very good way to be, and you're not going to be very happy if you're a disorganized person. Um, certainly, modeling good organizational skills. Um, you know, I think about the way that I kind of behave as an ad administrator at Reed is um, I've always tried to never micromanage my my uh, staff. So I've never like tried. I try not to impose my vision for things. Um, I, I tend to, by my nature, be a little bit controlling. So sometimes I kind of have to give that up. Um, and but. I've kind of said, okay, he, here is a here's a structure that you could use if what you're doing isn't working. And you don't have to use it if you've got something better. But if what you're doing isn't working or you don't even know how to begin, then please, please use this structure that I am putting in place for you. Um, you know, another strategy for me as a professor to help with the organization piece is um, I will start every class by re by reviewing the syllabus, not in every excruciating detail, but I will go through, okay, week one, done. We are now on week two. Next week, we have this, just as a reminder, and I will go through that every single time. I will preview the, the main assignments multiple times. I will then, you know, at some point review it in, in uh, a lot of detail. Um, and again, this comes back to the benefit of, to me, um, that synchronous learning online with recording is, you know, I can say, listen, I discussed the assignment back in week three, please go watch back that lecture. And there's all the information you need in terms of, of, of what the expectations of, of that assignment are. Um, so that, that's kind of another thing that I would say about the, the, the organization piece. Um, I think just as a, as a general thought or comment, you know, I have, a, I have worked with and observed students for whom um, I'm not sure if they're in, in the program for the right reason, or I'm not sure if they really have the, the necessary skill set for the program. And I would imagine in undergrad, you probably see this even, even more. I think there's, there's become this expectation in society that everyone goes to college. It's essentially like the, 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 the new high school in a, in a way. And so I think that one challenge is you have some people go into college who are simply not ready and, or they're going for something that they're trying to study, but it's not even what they want to be studying in the, in the first place. So it's not to like have a complete advertisement for things like trade school or, 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 or taking a year off. But I, I also think that there are some people who need to get their priorities in line before they really embark upon this, this educational journey. Um, and that's kind of more at the undergraduate level. And then certainly I think at the graduate level, um, you know, I have, again, have had a number of individuals who I think are, are highly motivated and, and can be really successful. But then I've certainly worked with individuals who it's kind of like, I'm not sure why, why you're here because you're not really putting in the effort and it doesn't really seem like this is your thing. So, um, you know, and those individuals I would try to have honest conversations with um, just in terms of, you know, well, let's talk about what, what you're looking to do in, in, in this uh, field. So yeah, I think that kind of answers. <laughs> yeah, that was good answer. <clears throat> That was, uh, thank you both so much. Those are really thoughtful questions and obviously 
answers you guys are so again like so well versed i think you're because you're living it you know i feel like it it's it's so helpful because you see so much that the rest of us don't see right i'm only accessing mostly asynchronous but sometimes synchronous instruction because of of continuing education but not you know right. every day um so there's so many so much good input <laughs> um i think it was also great that you uh you mentioned joe about um the man repertoire of learn of us as learners because i feel like uh i'll plug my high school um language arts teacher she always told me i'll give some unsolicited advice to students that you own your own education right and if like you have a question you're a smart person other people in your class probably have the same question so ask it so um mrs langton that one's for you. Okay, so um, moving on to the next section is going to be the rebuttal. Katie, um, representing the pro side, will speak first. So Katie, whenever you are ready, it's your turn. <laughs> okay, um, so I, I think that we've had great conversation about kind of the pros of traditional learning and the pros of online learning and kind of the cons of online and the cons of, of traditional learning. And, you know, I, I, I think that, at the end of the day, it really is to the benefit of the student for them to do kind of some self-reflection and think about what they need as a learner. Do they need to have someone holding them accountable? Do they need to have that structure? Do they need to have that routine? Do they need to be in a small um, class size? Do they need to you know, have somebody modeling for them um, in order to benefit from their learning? And if that's what they need, then, you know, I think looking at the route of a traditional program would really be something that we would be beneficial for that type of individual. Um, you know, if they have um, the ability to come to campus, if they have the ability to take that time away, you know, these are qualities I think that students, you know, would traditionally be successful in a traditional program. But I also think there's ownership on the program side to communicate to the students their expectations. One of the best things that ever happened to me when I went into my um, interview for my doctoral program, the director said to me, have you talked with your family, friends, uh, and coworkers about your desire to get a doctoral degree? And I thought, well, what an odd question. And I'm like, well, of course I talked to my family and my husband and my coworkers about going back to school. And, uh, you know, and, there, and he said, you know, well, is everyone supportive? And I'm like, of like, why would someone not be supportive? I'm, I'm going back to school. And he said, do they know that you're going to have to miss birthday parties? potential weddings, potential, um, you know, meetings after school, because you have a commitment to come to class and be here physically in person, and you will have papers and you will have tests that you will have to study for and deadlines. Are they all aware how this is not only going to impact you, but how it's going to impact them as well. And, and luckily, you know, I have had these conversations with all the folks in my life who support me and everyone was super supportive and I was able to tell him yes, but I thought what a great question at admission to ask the students, are you ready to take this step? Do you know what you're walking into? Do you know what the level of commitment will be? Um, and I think if there's hesitation, then that's an opportunity for us as you know, the administrators, educators, faculty members to pause and ask the students, you know, if you haven't thought through all of these things yet, 
maybe right now isn't the time. Maybe think about it and come back. And, you know, in a week from now, if you've talked with everyone and you've thought all this through and you're still ready to go, then let's do it. But a moment to pause instead of just letting anybody who applies and meets the minimum qualifications walk through the door. You know, higher education is a business. And so we only survive because of our students, but I don't think that means that we have to accept all the students. I think, you know, we really should be mindful and aware of our students' needs. And if we are seeing kind of those red flags that maybe this is a student that has too much on their plate and this commute back and forth to campus you know it's going to really impact them. They have you know, lots of family commitments, maybe pushing them in the direction of investigating a different type of learning modality would be to their benefit, right? And at the end of the day, if they become a behavior analyst and they become a good behavior analyst, it only benefits all of us, right? But if they come to a program that doesn't match their learning needs and they become a poor behavior analyst, you know, a, a, a not polished practitioner, somebody that people don't want to work with, it hurts all of us. So, you know, I think there is some ownership on our part as faculty members to point our students in the right direction. If we can see those signs early on that maybe this isn't the type of instruction that is for you, though I'm sure that's not what the universities will want us to say. But I really do feel like if you are a teacher at heart, you care about the success of your students and you want them to find the place that is going to help them be the most successful. Um, you know, we all know that the students that we typically support as behavior analysts are the students and, or clients that have not come into contact with success. And that's why folks are reaching out to us. And we know how, you know, that impacts them, you know, socially, academically, behaviorally. And, you know, we want to try to avoid that with our students too, and, and being supportive of them. Um, you know, again, those kind of benefits that I see from that traditional in-person instruction, that, you know, immediate feedback, the having multiple people listening to what you're saying and, and, and hearing, you know, how you explain something that that opportunity for modeling that, you know, public speaking opportunity, the ability to express um, your, 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 thoughts, your, the results of your evaluations in a professional disposition to show empathy, um, you know, to have that observational learning. And then, you know, I think like what I started off with was just like that connection, that social connection, that ability to build your social network, to hear about training opportunities, to hear about job opportunities um, from your classmates, from your faculty members, to see other folks going to conferences and, and them encouraging you to come to conferences. I mean, that's the thing that I miss most about, you know, pre-COVID is going to conferences and hearing, going to lectures that I would have never gone to, but because I'm at the conference, it's here and I'm hearing it and it's exposing me to new content. Um, you know, I think there's a little bit of that competition maybe that happens in in-person learning where you see your other your peers going to conferences and maybe that encourages you to go and that again only helps our profession um so i think you know those are just a couple of wrap-up comments for traditional um for traditional in-person learning that's it all of your points are, are really well taken because i feel like i missed the in-person too and that's a good point that when you go to conferences you know you want to see like um, presentation A and C. So you have to fill B with something. So, you know, you'll learn something new because you weren't 
planning on, you know, you didn't have anything to fill that time. So you filled it with, with something that you weren't expecting. So, and, um, and not just that, but like, I remember when I would go to conferences, when we had conferences, um, <laughs> I would always go to people who I never saw speak before people that I was reading, you know, their articles or reading their books, because, you know, as Joe mentioned, kind of our, our field is ever evolving and, and there are generations of practitioners who will not be around forever. And over the past couple of years, we've had quite a few, you know, major um, contributors to our field pass. And, you know, what an opportunity to see them live in person, you know, mm -hmm. right. Um, right. It's just if, if BF Skinner were around, I would have loved to have seen him, you know, right. Person. When, when we had the courses at Penn state, you know, I saw Dr. Martinez Diaz and I saw Dr. Iwata and I feel like that shaped who I am because, because I was able to, to, you know, hear it from the horse's mouth, if you will. Like I, I, it's so inspiring. Like I always leave, I, I go to the Penn state conference consistently and I always leave there so motivated. So like I can save the world. I can, uh -huh. do, you know, I can do all of the hard things. Um, and, you know, I, I think that motivation is, is important for yeah. in-person instruction. Yeah. Great points. All right. So now Joe representing the con side is going to give his rebuttal. So take it away, Joe. All right. Um, so a couple, uh, uh, a couple thoughts and themes that I, that I definitely want to talk about here. Um, the one that I think comes up time and time again, whether it is virtual learning or whether even as we we're just talking about with things like conferences, is a lot of it is how you do it and, and how you arrange that learning. So as an example, um, we just gave the example how with a traditional conference, you have to choose what workshops you go to. And yes, you can choose from a variety, but you still have to make a choice. And the number of times when I've said, you know what, I wish I could see this one and that one, but I have to choose one. So as a, as a, as a counterpoint, the Autism New Jersey conferences here, um, you can watch, my, to my understanding, or maybe because I was a presenter, but you can watch as many conferences as you want. You can watch all of the ones that are in section A and all the ones in section B and all the ones in C, and you can watch um, however many, I think maybe it's 80, 80 or so workshops or something like that across every different topic, seeing every person. So. You know, and and yes, it is a it is a different experience. Um, you know, with the way Autism New Jersey did their um, their uh, conferences this year, what they did is they would have some live presentations, and then they would have like the the presenter obviously presenting it live over video, and people in the room and chatting, and then they would have recorded presentations. But then the presenter was still expected to be in the room answering questions kind of live. So it was kind of like this interesting little little hybrid of sorts. Um, but I guess I'll, I say all this because it's actually a pretty cool way to, to, to do conferences. And yes, it is still a different experience from in person. Absolutely. It's the difference between seeing Lady Gaga in real life and seeing her on YouTube. Yes, <laughs> get it. And having seen Lady Gaga multiple times in person, I can tell you like there is nothing like a real. But at the her. same time, I would say the experience of seeing someone talk and present is not quite the same level of a concert. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like ultimately, um, you know, actually something like conferences could can be potentially really great. It's also great now because because so many conferences are virtual, 
you can attend a conference from a state and with people you've never possibly done before or, or never would. You know, I, um, I got asked to be part of a conference in North Dakota, I believe. And it's like a speech like conference and it's a really cool opportunity. I don't know that I would feel comfortable traveling because of COVID and I wouldn't necessarily go to the conference on a, on a normal day, but now because of this situation, I can go, I can present. So it's kind of like, I don't know, I think it's actually opened up some doors, but yes, I think, you know, the, the, the hardest piece is the networking and the social aspect, you know, and, and uh, the, the Autism New Jersey conference did a bunch of things to try to get people to have that interaction it's not as organic as being at a conference. And, you know, every time I, every time I, I go to uh, Autism New Jersey, I'm always reminded of the idea that in the field of autism, we are very, very small. So never burn bridges because you never know when you're going to run into someone and it never fails. When I go to that conference, I run into person, people from Douglas, people from DLC, people from Vernon, every, everywhere that I've ever been. And I'm like, thank goodness I leave places on good terms because otherwise I would be running into corners every five seconds trying to hide from people. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that, that 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 social aspect is the most challenged part of, of all of this because you don't have that same sense of community. And I, I do understand that, um, but you do get other benefits. Uh, obviously, I, I do think that those are important. Um, in terms of the, the, the actual like, uh, student learning piece, I think the important, the important piece is to own your educational experience. And this comes back to knowing yourself and knowing what you want and knowing what you need. And, you know, it's almost like there should be some sort of online, you know, learning profile where you, you know, figure out, okay, based on these characteristics, am I more suited for online learning or suited for in-person learning? But the truth is, it's not even as simple as that, because it really would be, am I more suited for synchronous learning or asynchronous learning? Um, that seems to be the more relevant, I think, feature at, at, at this point. But um, I think that and that is something that is important is, is people need to be able to have that, that ownership of of what do they need in a program? Because I would I would agree that there are some people who really do need that in person, and there are some people who, quite frankly, could do quite fine with an online uh, uh, class. And I think you know that that would be uh, fine for them. Um, you know, there there are a lot of things that I know you you discussed in terms of the the strengths of of in person learning, things like public speaking, uh, empathy, observational learning. Again, I I truly do believe all of those things can be accomplished online in a synchronous live format. So you know, when, when we're making that that comparison, I think that that that's the distinction that that I would make is that um, for online learning to be maximally effective, um, I think having a, a synchronous component is is helpful. I don't think it necessarily would need to be for every single course. I think you could have courses that are purely asynchronous. I, I, I think that that is feasible. I, I teach one at Endicott, so I feel like I kind of have to say that. But no, I, um, I, I do feel that there are some courses that really do benefit, obviously, from, from, from that synchronous piece. Um, the other thing that we're, we kind of are, are touching base a little bit about and we talked about before is the idea of, of the hands-on learning. 
And this is something where I think, you know, it's not to get into too much of a tangent, but um, this is where also the, the supervised experience part, and I'm thinking here in terms of, of the BCBA program, obviously, uh, but I think this is where the, the, the actual supervised experience piece has a very important role. And this also comes into what do people see the role of the university program and then the, the field experience piece. I've always viewed the role of the, of the university program as to provide the, the academic knowledge and the application of said knowledge comes from the supervised experience. So if, if you're operating within that premise, then I think that also leads to saying that online learning would be more achievable because you don't have that same mandate to have all that hands-on practice because that's what comes through your actual uh, experience, like your, your, your actual experience there. Um, you know, and I, I think, you know, um, that being said, I think a, a good teacher, if they are you know, doing something like prompting strategies, they don't just talk about it, they, they, they do show it. And when I have class in person, I do have people practice prompting and things like that. So I think, you know, it, it's um, the, the, the benefit of online learning for getting that hands on practice is obviously great for, for in person, right? Um, you don't get as much with online. Okay, um, for me, it's it's not a deal breaker because I feel like it really does come down to your to your field experience in terms of getting a lot of that actual application. Um, so just, just some additional kind of thoughts on 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 that stuff. So I think our next step is to develop that questionnaire that mm -hmm. we talked about so that we can market it and get it in students' hands so they figure out the type of learner uh, that they are. And I couldn't agree with you more about um, that synchronous model of instruction. I, I do think it's the best of both worlds where you still can develop community, you still can develop rapport, um, but that flexibility for me, I think is the most critical component that is the benefit of online learning is just being able to, as behavior analysts, we can have really tough days some days and to be able to come home and sit in your comfy chair in the comfort of your own home and decompress and provide, you know, get access to your instruction is such a benefit, you know, I think it's the biggest benefit of all um, for learning and, but you get the best of both worlds because yeah. you get to see your professor, you get to ask those questions immediately. And I think that's where the world is moving. I think yeah. we have to get away from the barriers <laughs> of traditional in-person and traditional online. And this is the new world. This is the new world of academia where we blend the benefits of both in-person and you know online learning so that it's maximally effective for the students because that who's who our audience is you know we need to make sure that we're meeting their needs and we have to as our field evolves we have to evolve and as the technology evolves we have to evolve and it will only benefit our students so um yeah I think flexibility and oh, go ahead. Yeah. I, I just say I, I I also you know as I was thinking about all this, um, I think you know having more online programs ultimately can lead to a, an an increase in quality of programs. And ironically, I think initially my thought was that because online is easier in some way, right? You you could have more programs that that exist because you don't really have to worry about people coming to you. But as you start to have more choices, 
you people are going to go to the best programs. Like I'm going to go to a top quality program because I'm not restricted to go to a program that is in my geographic location. So I have the flexibility to go to the best programs if they offer online learning. And so then to me, what that does is it forces programs to increase their quality and to make sure that they're, that they're delivering online learning in a great format because delivering it in an effective format helps pass rates, which ultimately helps the university because they want to be known as a school with good pass rates for the exam. Um, but ultimately increases, I think, the ability for students to learn effectively because now the pressure is on that school because now they because now they have to compete. They have to compete with all. I mean, it used to be that as a program, you would compete in a regional bit in a, in a regional manner with the schools around you. So you'd compete. So so for speech, Penn State, we're all ended right. up Penn State. Well, right. And so like for speech, it oh, used to be lines. okay. You 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 you'd go to William Patterson or you go to Montcourt State or Seton Hall or Kane or TCNJ when they had a program. Now you can learn online. So there is no mandate to have to be at that place, which gives the student so much more choice. But it, and let me tell you, if, if, if you don't have a good program, people aren't coming to you now because they don't have to, they can go to a better program potentially. So I think it ultimately really increases the, 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 the quality for, for educational programs. And the other thing <laughs> that it does is that it increases the capacity for behavior analysts to serve folks in underserved regions, right? Like I remember when I first got into the field and they're like, there's no behavior analysts in North Dakota, you know, and now there's probably a hundred or a thousand behavior analysts in North Dakota, but that's not because they had programs in North Dakota. That's because people in North Dakota were able to have, like you said, that ability to go out of their region, to go to a program, you know, like Penn State's program or the Chicago school or Endicott's program, yep. and then bring that quality service back to people in their state. And, you know, we are yeah. in Pennsylvania alone. We have on our wait list for services, like something like 13,000 people on a wait list for services because there's not enough of us. So if we can increase capacity by, you know, letting, breaking down the geographical borders and bringing people in who otherwise wouldn't be able to access our programs, you know, that's a benefit to the world, not just to, you know, the field of behavior analysis. It improves the quality of life for so many people. So, you know, like you said, it not only does it break down the barrier and increase competition and, you know, better programs, but it also increases care for individuals that can't get access to it. We're lucky in New Jersey. We don't realize how lucky we are. There's, you know, BCBAs on every corner in New Jersey, but, and there's still not enough of us. Yeah. Right. Right. There's still not enough of us. So. I think that access piece is, is that was what, because when you were talking about flexibility, my thought was access, because I feel like um, all you really need now is headphones, right? You can go to your public library and stick your headphones into their computer and type all your things there. They have the internet connection. They have everything. So all you need is, you know, headphones and you can get, I mean, and you have to pay for it, but get higher education. And some, though some states it's included in, you know, your, your, um, living just living in the state you get higher education for free so um it's well, pretty cool yeah, and, and 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 i think you know i think it's a good thing because someone doesn't necessarily need to uproot their life to go to a school yeah. um which listen if you're talking about something like like a doctoral degree i imagine there are still plenty of people who do feel inclined to do that um 
totally get that, totally understand it. Uh, but I think especially if you're talking about the master's degree level or even something like undergrad or like a, a post bachelor's certificate or something like that, not everyone wants to have to travel two hours to school or to go to a different state for a couple of years and then move back. Like, right. so, I mean, the, 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 the fact that it does open up those doors is, is, is huge. Right. Um, right. But I think it means that there needs to be a lot of quality control for these online programs because, yeah. you know, because it's so easy to create one, theoretically, you could have some less quality ones that are kind of coming out. So <clears throat> that's a really good point. And that, that access piece helps me too, because, yeah. you know, I cannot for my life I have, you know, other humans that I'm responsible for. So like it, it gives access to any, any, I can go anywhere I want, <laughs> which is amazing. Thank you both. You bring up such thought provoking points. Um, the next segment of our debate is the second crossfire. So I'm joined by our director of training and clinic operations, Ashley Kemmerer, and the two of us are kind of uh, going to moderate some questions of both sides some of which were submitted by our admin team. We kind of collaborated on some of them. Um, debaters, I'm just gonna ask that you answer the question to the best of your ability and just ask for clarification as if possible. And then um, as always, keep it respectful. So the first question I'm gonna direct to Katie. Um, in the fall of 2021, NPR reported uh, on the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center's data showing that enrollment in undergraduate and graduate programs has been trending downward since 2012, but the pandemic kind of, and this is their, their words, turbocharged the decline at, uh, at the undergraduate level. In a similar report with an interesting juxtaposition, Forbes reported that graduate enrollment continues to be relatively strong, maintaining an upward trend of an increase reported in the fall of 2020. How has that kind of been impactful to ABA programs in particular? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think to some extent, good programs will continue to thrive programs that struggled prior to the pandemic are going to struggle. And so, um, you know, I, I really do think it depends on the program um, and maybe some of the programs that are struggling are struggling because they were struggling prior to the pandemic and now it's just kind of being acerbated a little bit. But I, I think a misperception that we've talked about earlier is that, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, everyone went to college. It was just the expectation that everyone went to college. And I think now that uh, we have lived through this pandemic, are living through the pandemic, people are really realizing what's more important to them. Um, and so really following their passions. And so I think some people are moving towards that um, trade industry or taking a year off um, because they want to follow their passion and maybe going to college wasn't in their plan. Um, but I think for the field of behavior analysis, it's a little bit different because we are in such high demand as behavior analysts. Um, the Labor Bureau of Labor Statistics projected a 19% growth in uh, BCBA jobs through 2024. Um, so wow. we have not seen a decline in our graduate programs or our undergraduate programs. We've seen an increase in our programs. Um, I mean, that's specific to our program, um, but I think that it, it speaks to the need for behavior analysts. I think that, you know, it, we're a profession that is um, new and up and coming in many ways, you know, our, our field is not very old. Um, and I think that we get 
some more attention, you know, in the uh, in the media, and uh, people are figuring out what behavior analysts are. I remember when I first started working in the field, and I would tell people that I was a behavior analyst, and they would look at me like I had ten heads. And now I meet people, and I say I'm a behavior analyst, and they're like, "Oh, do you work with kids that have autism?" And I'm like, "Yes, I do." So you know, it there, we do more than just support students that have autism, but it's nice to know that people kind of recognize our profession a little bit. And then I found this other um, information from Burning Glass Technologies, and they found that um, there were 16,000 job postings for BCBAs and BCABAs. So, um, you know, I think if people are doing their research and looking into helping professions and see that there is, you know, this need, uh, it's going to pull more folks into our field. So um, getting more access to programs, whether they are traditional or online, is beneficial to us. Yeah, that's yeah. a great answer. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. My next question is kind of for both of you. Um, how, and you guys have both kind of uh, touched on this uh, in your conversations, but how would you both recommend professors get instruction on teaching pedagogy, like using different forms of technology and accessing specific classroom management strategies? You both kind of mentioned how programs vary so much and a huge component of variations is effective instruction. Um, and again, like just to reiterate, well, not reiterate, but just to emphasize that this is a problem across fields, not just ABA, because, you know, just because of the nature of, of uh, who becomes professors. So um, do one of you want to start with, Joe, you want to take yeah. that? Yeah, um, I, I, so to me, this is the responsibility of the university program um, when they are hiring individuals. You know, I don't, I know that um, in like a, in a traditional public school, they'll do things like have people do like a teaching demonstration. And um, I don't know if universities ever do this for adjuncts and things like that, but, you know, to me that that would be one effective tool because, you know, if you're going to be a good practitioner, you need to have a baseline of sorts, right? And you have to understand what is this yeah. person's presentation style. And uh, it's not that everyone needs to fit into a particular box. You don't need to have, you know, to, you don't need to have a certain number of quips to keep the student engagement or a certain number of questions. I, I don't think that we need to go to that level, but I think that a person can on a base level assess whether or not this person is e effective. So to me, I would have some com someone come in and do like a guest lecture in a, in a potential class, and that would give me some information. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I, I do feel like it is a responsibility of the university programs. I know there are some programs out there, apparently, that do have these sorts of uh, training courses, but um, I definitely have not, you know, personally ever experienced one of them. But I think that would be very beneficial because um, that, that, that translation from a highly skilled clinician to a highly skilled professor is in no way, shape or form guaranteed. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really important that we do have that, that skill set also uh, de developed so that they can be an effective, uh, educator. When you become, that's a great answer. When you become a professor, is there any kind of like, um, like training that you go through or is it kind of just more like very, very, um, um, university specific? Like, do they have like, you know, new teacher yeah. trainings always have like people. Come in and, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, it's, it's university specific. I mean, every university is going to have their standard policies and things like that. Do you have to get training on, um, I know for Kane, when we went virtual, we had to complete like a blackboard training. Um, um, it was actually very, very intensive training. Um, a lot of like extra hours and it was like a lot of posts and everything was due by very specific dates. It was, it was, it was very, very intensive. Um, 
so like that that was an example but yeah, that right. did not happen prior to the, the pandemic um endicott i don't recall i don't think there was any extensive training i think it's right, more right. like here's these manuals here's a guide here's a website if you need support reach out um you know a lot of university programs will have someone who is in a liaison type role who will kind of support if someone needs needs help but i don't know how much like upfront training occurs interesting katie is that what you've seen too so i a little different experience when i taught for the chicago school of professional psychology they actually made you um like a teaching assistant in a faculty member's course for one semester so that you could um, see what they were doing and kind of model off of them so i thought that was a really good experience they also have you go through they use canvas and so they had you go through like a a boot camp on like a six week boot camp on it wow. sounds like similar to Joe what you did with Blackboard like how to use Blackboard how to set, or how to use Canvas how to set it up um, at uh, Felician they have a new faculty orientation where they do different um, professional development with you um, but uh, and if you teach online you have to go through a certificate program before you're able to teach online so they there is kind of some um, kind of prerequisites. But I think not only is it the university's responsibility, but I think it's our responsibility as faculty for professional development. Like we need to, we can't just do the same old thing because we've done the same old thing. Like we have to go out and actively seek um, like instruction on flipped learning and, you know, different types interteach, you know, that's, uh, that's from behavior analysis. You know, we, we should be using our practices in our classrooms. Um, but like you said, it's not just in behavior analysis, it's across the board in higher education. You know, we can't get comfortable in one style of teaching. We really do have to follow the science and the science evolves and as it evolves and we evolve. And if not, then students will be the judge. They will stop taking your courses. They will look to see when's Joe teaching his class because I know that I'm gonna benefit from his class versus maybe they don't wanna see my class because all I do is lecture. So the students will speak just by their action of registering for the courses that they and that they want to take. That yeah, that's really interesting that it's it varies so much between universities. So um, I'm gonna throw it over to Ashley. She has a few questions for both of you. Um, so Ashley, and take your time. Uh, okay, awesome. Okay. All right, so thanks, Megan, for the opportunity to ask my questions. Um, my first question is kind of more for Joe. Um, so I've had the opportunity to take online courses and in person. So um, when I've taken online courses, I've often felt kind of really disconnected, both from the professor and my fellow students in the course. Um, I know you've mentioned a few strategies um, through your conversations, but I was wondering if you have any additional ways that you try to provide your students in online courses with a sense of connection to you know their fellow students and to you as their professor yeah um so one thing i, I um when i'm thinking about uh endicott this semester um they had us uh, add in like a, a a picture of ourselves add in like a more kind of like fun bio just kind of really like talking about more like personal stuff so that they really get get to kind of know us. Um, I've done things like having like an introduction discussion board where I ask people to kind of go through, you know, talking a little bit about their background. That's actually one area where um, I, I definitely like the the online versus the in person. I've stopped doing it 
in in person because at, earlier in my teaching career I used to do a thing where I would have them go around the room and talk about them and where they're from and like everyone typically dreads that and no one can remember anything <laughs> quite frankly I can't remember like what I ate for dinner so I'm not going to remember this person where they were so I actually use the discussion boards whether it's in person or virtual I've used them for things like personal introductions so I think that that's one thing if you're um if you're online encouraging people to do like a a, a little blog post plus like a picture introduction can be nice because you get to put a face to a name or encouraging to do a short like video clip, um, you know, wh whatever kind of that, that person feels comfortable with doing. Um, I think that that's one way in terms of, you know, student to student uh, collaboration in a, in a way. Um, also, um, as I mentioned earlier, with things like discussion boards, making sure that the posts that they have to respond to are actually going to facilitate and stimulate conversation and not dead end, like yes, no, like binary type things where there is nothing interesting that can come from that from a conversation. So I think, you know, that that's in the design of the course to make sure that you have interesting topics for discussion. Um, and then in terms of the presence with a faculty member, I think that also comes from responding to discussion boards, having actual feedback to, to students, and of course, in, you know, in the ideal world, having synchronous lectures and things like that. Um, I, I think, you know, having a synchronous lecture, I think at least takes the disconnect between the professor and the student away from the individual student to the individual professor because you get to see them and, and you can engage with them. Um, it does still make it more challenging from the student to student perspective, I, I would say, which is why um, I do feel like things like discussion boards are very useful because they can foster that student to student discussion. Um, so those are, I think, the main strategies that, that, that I would recommend. I don't think there's anything too magical about it. Can I add something? <clears throat> Too, that I was thinking about. Um, one of the things that I was thinking when you were speaking is it might be an idea, and I haven't done this before, but asking the students or assigning the students to meet with you for 15 minutes at some point during the semester at a time that's convenient for both of you, just to have that, even if it's just 15 minutes of face-to-face -face interaction so that, you know, if Ashley were in your program and, you know, she really enjoyed your class, and now she's applying for a position and needs a letter of recommendation, then when she mm. reaches out to you, then you're like, I have a face with a name. I know who the student is. Not only do mm. I know her because of her academic work, but I have a little bit of you know, interaction with her, even if it's only a brief period of time. But I think going the extra mile yeah. to make that connection with students might be really valuable, but it would be, you know, a little um, effortful on the faculty part if they have 30 students they have to meet with them each for 15 minutes but yeah I actually so I, I actually do this so for for my second to last week um, which is before they have to submit their final project I will have them schedule individual meetings with me I have like a google calendar and usually I've had like 10 or 12 students in my class so I can make it work and I kind of joke that it's almost like speed dating because like we have like 10 minute slots and talk quickly and then they're out of there <laughs> but we hilarious. have like really nice but we have like really nice conversations this semester i have 20 students so i'm like eh, i'm gonna have to definitely split this up over several nights during the week because there's just no other way that, that that i can make this work but but i do agree that, that that's a nice way to have that actual personal connection i think for me it's a little unfortunate that i do it the second to last week i mean it'd be nice if i could do it earlier in the 
in the program, but um, I think that, that that is a great idea for ways to have that connection. All right, so my next question I think is more for Katie. How do you think in-person programs can account for the flexibility that online programs provide? I personally really like the environment and engagement of an in-person course, but kind of like the older I get and the longer I've been in grad school, um, I really do value time and flexibility as well, um, which is often not available in an in-person course, which I know you guys have touched on a little bit, but something I was thinking of too is like, for example, I know the intensity of some ABA master's programs that are out there that are in-person programs kind of almost require that students can't even work because there's so much involved. Um, and that really removes access for a lot of students who, for example, might need to work full-time during grad school. Yeah, I have heard about some of those programs and, and I do think it's unfortunate in some ways because it deters students from pursuing those programs. You know, they might be excellent programs, but if they say, you know, you need to work in our clinic, you need to work in our um, center um, and you have to do all of this coursework and we only offer our courses during the day or in the late afternoon, um, you know, I, I think it it restricts who can attend those programs. Um, so the flexibility is can't be beat, obviously, in online instruction. But I think with the blend of the technologies of having um, the like at Felician, we offer our students the ability to either come into the building, the brick and mortar building, or they can log on through Zoom and we will teach them synchronous simultaneously. And the way that we have it set up is that our students, whether they are in the classroom or in Zoom land, everyone logs into Zoom. So everyone's looking at each other the same way that they would see each other in a traditional classroom, um, sitting next to their peers. And then when we do uh, like instruction and we wanna do small group instruction, I can set up a breakout room for students that are both in the classroom and on the, um, and you know, receiving their instruction from home. Um, but I think universities have to get out of their comfort zone. That is the, that's the main answer. They have to realize that the higher education world is evolving and changing and that, you know, that landscape looks very different. And if they want to compete, then they have to change with the times. I, I think we have to get out of the habit of this is what instruction looks like because instruction has been turned upside down and some people have really benefited from having that, you know, um, instruction at home. You know, I think about the students that in the K-12 world, and I mean, it could happen in, in college and in graduate school too, but that are bullied, right? Now they don't have to go in person and see those people on a daily basis. They don't have to look at them. They can move their picture somewhere else on, you know, the Zoom world. And they don't have to see that person. And it's a lot easier for them to receive their instruction when their anxiety is low. And, you know, I think that is true for all of us. When we're not stressed, when we have that balance, we absorb the information so much more meaningfully. Um, but I do think that at the end of the day, it's universities having to just swallow their pride and say that we're still going to be just as good, even if we provide synchronous learning to our students because that flexibility is something that really people are looking for. And I think people's priorities have changed over the pandemic. And you know, they're 
realizing what is truly important to them and time with themselves, time with their family, time with their loved ones, their friends is a priority because as we know, things can change on a dime and we have no control over that. So I do think that that's really an area where universities need to decide, you know, it's kind of a make or break it moment right now. Do we want to stay competitive? Do we want to meet our students' needs or do we want to, you know, be left in the dust and not evolve? Thank you so much for that answer, uh, Katie. It's so great to hear that your program is doing a hybrid model because I don't think a lot of people know that that's an option right now. Um, I definitely didn't know it was an option. So it's great to hear and I hope more schools move towards that model. Um, okay, so my next question is kind of for both of you. Um, what are your thoughts in general on technology in college courses? And I know this is kind of be different answers for both of you because in the you know online platform, obviously you cannot get away from technology at all. But I know something I thought about was that in some of my in-person courses prior to COVID happening, you know, I've had professors that maybe banned computers in the classroom so that you know you have your students full attention. And as much as I kind of grumbled about it when it first was in the syllabus, um, I did ultimately enjoy the fact that I had to attend. I didn't have the distractions on my computer. And when COVID happened and we moved, we were forced to online courses, uh, but they were synchronous. I still found myself just so distracted because it's just there and it's available. Um, so I'd love to kind of know your thoughts on maybe some of the barriers or positives of having that technology available all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will say there have been times when I definitely have wanted to ban computers. Um, you know, I, I think I'm amusing, but I know I'm not like rolling on the floor laughing. And when I see a student who is clearly like way too excited for a discussion about reinforcement, I'm like, okay, you're not, or they're, or they're just staring so intently. I'm like, there's no way you're paying attention to me. Um, but I think to some degree, I would almost look at it as, as analogous to you know, uh, people getting tickets for using cell phones in cars, right? That's a very specific topography of distracted behavior. But people can be putting on lipstick, eating, changing their radio, doing all sorts of other things that are distracted driving. So I think the issue is, is that the, the technology, the laptop in the classroom is one specific topography of distraction. But when people, if people cannot pay attention, they, they, they will find a way to distract themselves, whether it is on their phone, whether it's literally counting their fingernails or doing something, they, they will find some way of distracting themselves ultimately. And again, it comes back to just because your laptop's closed and your eyes are on me, doesn't mean you're attending to me at all. You could be, you could be completely in, in your head. So I think that to that extent, it is the personal accountability. It is the maturity. It's the, you know, you're here for a reason. And especially if it's an in-person class, you're not getting a repeat performance of, of this. So you better pay attention in class. And if you don't, well, then you better study hard because that's how you're going to have to learn your, your content. In terms of the online piece, yeah, the, the distraction is unavoidable because you're literally sitting there and the temptation to just click on Facebook real quick is obviously something that most people cannot avoid for an entire two and a half hour period of time. Um, but, you know, as a professor, you can, again, try to, you know, 
decrease the likelihood of this by having uh, more polling questions and things like that. Now you're not going to put, you know, polling questions every five minutes. That's going to completely distract from the flow of your lecture or what have you, but you'll have enough that you'll get some representative sample of, of whether or not they, they, they are attending. But um, I think it's a, it's a challenge. We are a very distractible society. The, the, the younger generation is plugged in all the time and, you know, they are the YouTube era where they need where they, they, they typically like things in quick five minute segments or very, you know, quick, they, they, they kind of benefit from that reinforcement very, very, very quickly. So the, and it, it goes back to what Katie was saying earlier about the traditional style of teaching that, that sitting in front of a room and lecturing for two and a half hours, it is literally torture for some people to have to sit through that because they don't deal with that anymore. They, 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 they don't have to go through that. They, they get to watch a quick YouTube clip and then flip to this and flip to this and flip to this. So it's really important to be engaging in, in your presentation style. Uh, but I think it is genuinely a challenge and there's just no, no way around it. It is a, it's a challenge with, with that, that, that um, on on demand access that is expected. Like I, I turned my phone off for today's podcast. I have not turned my phone off in literally years. I'm not even exaggerating, but I'm doing it because like I cannot do not want to be distracted right now. But that is an incredibly rare exception. So yeah. thank you for and doing I that. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking when you said that, I'm like, I have not also been on Facebook in two and a half hours. <laughs> I actually blocked my email because Ashley was like an issue message because I have, I tried to have the multiple ones because if I see an email, it'll, you know, that's what I'm starting to think about. And yeah. Um, the other thing that I was going to say is that I think that if you are an engaging faculty member, it does, the students can have their computers in front of you and they will still be engaged. And similar to the conversation that we had about eye contact earlier, um, just because they're looking at Facebook doesn't mean that they're not listening to you also. So they could be, I mean, I think this is the generation of the best multitasker, right? They are, they are breeding multitasking to the nth degree. They can hear it, see it, you know, be writing something down, thinking about something else and you ask them and they'll be able to respond. So I think this generation is really uniquely poised to have technology at their fingertips. Um, and I think that there's a lot of schools like in Southern California, there's districts that are, they have no textbooks. They only have iPads. So they're an I one-to-one -one iPad school. The kids have never received instruction without technology, right? And so they're already prepared for this type of learning. It's us as faculty members having to get out of our comfort zone. It is okay for our students to be on their computer, to check their phone. Obviously, if we're taking a test and we don't want to have cheating, that's a different story. But in class, you know, that is, you know, if you're not engaging them, that is a something of self-reflection that you need to consider as faculty members. But if you are engaging and you have interactive activities and similar to what Joe said, you know, five minutes of, you know, something engaging and then reflection and, and also breaks, like students can't sit for more than an hour without getting up and moving around. So making sure you build in those opportunities for them to be able to check their phone without you having to kind of be monitoring it. It's it's okay during those break times. About an hour is kind of as long as people can go without getting access. So I think we have to evolve. I feel like that's like a theme in our discussion here. That's a great point. Yeah. 
I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Those were both excellent answers. Um, Joe, I love the distracted driving analogy. That was great. Um, and Katie, I think that was a really great point that you being an engaging professor is really the most important thing. Cause you made me think about like my favorite PhD course that I've taken so far, we were allowed to have our computers, but it was just such a great course. And the professor just did such a great job of making the material engaging. I didn't want to look at my computer. I wanted to pay attention. So great point. Um, okay. So my last question is for both of you. Um, so when I personally applied to my PhD program, which was been a few years ago now, um, it kind of felt like that coming from an online program, which I did, my master's was online, was kind of looked down upon. Everybody that I applied to my program with, they had all went to these, you know, big name schools with big name faculty, and that wasn't where I came from. Um, so since COVID and kind of the increased popularity of online grad graduate programs, do you guys think that the stigma surrounding the kind of quote unquote quality of online programs has gone away in the ABA field? Or do you think it's still around? Um, Katie, is it okay if I uh, yeah. start this one out? Yeah, go right um, ahead. Yeah, so um, my my instinct would be with the proliferation of online learning that the stigma has started going away. I think also as people are starting to see clinicians in the field who have gone through online programs and then they're like, oh, they're pretty good. Um, I think that that's also helping because they're seeing that, oh, here's a person who came from the online program and they're amazing. Personally, um, I don't think the thought really crosses my mind all that much on a daily basis in terms of when I have a colleague, I'm like, what program did they go to? It doesn't really cross my mind. What, what, what crosses my mind is, are they good at their job? Um, and I think that is really the most important factor there is, you know, are, are they effective with, with what they're doing? You know, my, my big debate I had at one point was, do I go for an EDD or a PhD? And um, I had someone who said, you know, you should go for your PhD because if you get an EDD, people will look down on you and you'll never be satisfied. And I said, well, you know what? I don't think that's a really compelling reason because I don't really care what someone else has to say. I'm going to go for the degree and the program that, that makes sense for me. Um, you know, and I was saying this kind of earlier, but I feel like there is this tendency academically to have like a one one upsmanship mentality of you know well I went to this program I went to this program I had this person for a dissertation uh, chair I had this person and you're always going to find someone who wants to try to say that their program or their experience was better or or something like that and ultimately I think it's just a a, a lot of noise that needs to kind of just be be ignored and ultimately your um your your credentialing and your ability to do your job will kind of speak for itself. Um, so I think, you know, you can be someone who goes to the best program in, in the country, but be terrible at your job, or you can go to a program that no one has ever heard of out in, you know, East or wherever, and you can be absolutely amazing. Um, so I, I don't think that the program makes the uh, person necessarily. Um, and I, I do generally think that the stigma has probably started to go away, but I'm sure there are people who probably still have it particularly if they are from the older generation that maybe hasn't embraced online learning quite as much. And I think always if somebody introduces themselves and they have to list, you know, all of their credentials and all the places that they've studied and who they studied under, it's like, you don't have to impress me, just do the work. Let's do the work. That's all that matters at the end of the day. Um, but I think there's some insecurities in folks that do go through the litany of 
these are all the places that I've gone and studied and who I've studied under. But at the, like you said, Joe, at the end of the day, it's like, who can do the work? Who can, you know, be that, you know, really great practitioner. Um, and I had the same kind of feeling when I went back to my program, uh, I ended up doing an EDD program also because I said, I never don't want to be a practitioner because that is what I love. That is my passion. I love, if I could have been a, um, a registered behavior technician or paraprofessional for the rest of my life, that would have been my preferred job. I loved doing the work, but then I learned how fun it was to develop programs and then build programs and, you know, take something from the, from nothing and turn it into this amazing thing. Um, but I needed to continue my education to have those opportunities to be able to do that. But when I thought about the work that I wanted to do, I never wanted to do research. I wanted to be that practitioner who understood the research and can make that translation. Because in our field, I think that's a big gap that we have is that, you know, research to practitioner uh, translation, it just, it, it takes a long time. And so I'm like, I want to be that bridge. And I always want to have my pulse on what's going on in the classrooms, um, supporting students, because that's what is motivating to me. So I think you have to decide for yourself. It is your self-reflection. What do you want out of your program? Find the program that matches your needs and you will get the most out of that program. Um, if you're, if you're motivated and it, you know, it, it gets you to the point where you want to be that end goal in your career. I totally agree. Those were, those were really great points. And I think, you know, the longer that I'm in the field and now that I've gone almost all the way through my PhD program, I have also learned similar to kind of your guys' thoughts that coming from, you know, a quote unquote, excellent program doesn't always make you an excellent BCBA and your work will eventually speak for itself. So. I agree. I think coming from excellent mentors makes you a good professional, not necessarily, Absolutely. Um, you know, your program per se, but I, I think that if it wasn't for my mentors, I would not be the behavior analyst that I am today, which is what motivates me to do what I do for my students, because I always tell them, I want you to be better than me. I want you to, you know, have it better than me as a behavior analyst and know more and, and be successful and, and be a contributing member to our field. That's going to make our fields, you know, continue to thrive and look good and uh, be around for many years to come. Absolutely. I kind of feel that way. What Ashley said about, um, I kind of feel that way with uh, with our company, with Graham, because I feel like I try to impart that on the people that I supervise. And I also get that from my supervisors. So it's it's nice to have that kind of um, that kind of similar mentorship translate to the field. Um, all right. So, <clears throat> Ashley, thank you so much for for taking over my uh, taking over the moderating position. You rocked it. So, you know, if you ever need a, an, another responsibility, you can, you could take over the you podcast. co-host Meg. I'm here. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you have the job. Um, all right. And both of you, thank you so much for the, again, the thoughtful responses. So that kind of brings us up to the end. Um, I, I, I don't even know what else there is to say. You both have said so much. So, uh, we're just going to have a final summary and focus. If you want to just say a few final closing thoughts, we'll start with Katie um, representing the pro side. Katie, you want to just give some final thoughts? 
Sure. I, I first, I just want to say thank you for inviting us to come and be here tonight. It has been so much fun and I'm getting to interact with people that I wouldn't normally get to interact with. So I'm just thrilled that I was able to be a part of this and hopefully the contributions will be thought provoking and, you know, get people thinking maybe in a different way about instruction. Um, and so, you know, in just kind of the follow up um, to the conversation that we've had already, you know, I think we really need to break down the barriers of what we think about traditional in-person and traditional online instruction is and see the benefits to both and how we can really support the students. Because at the end of the day, that is who we should be really thinking about developing our programs to best meet their learning needs, be, meet their you know um, personal needs and help our profession and get great behavior analysts out in the field that can provide quality service to individuals that need um, care. Yes, that's awesome. Preach. <laughs> All right, thank you. And uh, Joe, did you wanna give some final thoughts? thing uh well everything katie said in terms of uh, thank you for for the opportunity this has been uh quite enjoyable um and uh yeah i think what what we've learned especially with covid is virtual learning is is here to stay um the truth is online learning has existed well before uh covid it's it's certainly been around but everyone was kind of forced into it now um and um I think that it, it requires us developing a bit of a different skill set and a different repertoire. And um, if you're a professor, I think you need to recognize that you may have some skills that you need to increase for yourself to be more effective in your uh, your delivery of, of education to students. If you're a university program, I think it's important that you recognize that you know, you have to select a format for online instruction that is actually going to be meaningful for your students and you need to have that ownership and, and, and accountability for ensuring that, that it is an effective means of delivering instruction. And if you're a student, you need to recognize what is it about your unique learning profile that would benefit from one style of instruction over another. Um, there is still a choice, obviously, at this point. I imagine there will always be a choice, but maybe not. I, I, I could see a scenario where the number of in-person programs does start to dwindle and there are less options and more people do end up going to online learning and even the majority of people go to online learning. So um, I think as, as a student, you need to own, own your learning experience and understand um, where your strengths and where your weaknesses and um, you know, let's say you didn't have an option about online learning, as many students did did find during this COVID pandemic, whether they were someone who, who wanted in person or not, they were forced into virtual learning. So, um, you know, you, you have to identify, well, what is it that I need to work on so that I can benefit more from this style of learning, which is clearly the, the, the way that I think education is going to continue to, 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 to go. Um, so, you know, I think that it's a it's a it's a debate that's not necessarily uh, is one better than the other. I think ultimately it's uh, in, in in what context or under what conditions is one is one type of thing more beneficial, and what are the characteristics of online learning that are most effective for most students. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting question for sure, and it's been been very fun to participate in this discussion. Thank you so much. I'm I'm so thankful that both of you enjoyed this because I feel like I equally enjoyed your input. I feel like you were so thoughtful. You were thorough. Um, I'm so thankful that you joined us, but more thankful that like I was able to listen to your, you impart such like great wisdom. Um, 
you're like, you're, you're just both such passionate and impactful teachers and your students are lucky to have you. I wish I could take one of your courses or I wish that I had gone through one of your courses and, you know, change back. You can <laughs> because it's online. Yes. Oh, perfect. <laughs> All right. <Victory>. <laughs> Thank you both so much. I just wanted to hop on real fast just to close everything up. Thank you so much, Dr. Katie Croce and Dr. Joe Novak. You dedicated so much time and energy and thought and really passion into this whole discussion. And I appreciate you sharing your insight with our field. I think it will be very important for people entering our field and those who've been in it for a while. Um, if anybody wants to be a guest debater like Dr. Croce or Dr. Novak, just email us if you have a great topic to debate. Send us an email, uh, showdown at grahambehavior.com, or you can follow us on Instagram. Um, you can follow us on Pinterest, LinkedIn, Twitter. We're everywhere. Uh, so stay tuned for new ABA Ultimate Showdown episodes coming out. We appreciate any thoughtful review on the platform you listen to us. And I appreciate everybody at Graham Behavior Services who helps bring us to you. Don't forget, we have a lot of CEs available, both via podcast and just ones that our amazing staff has recorded. So uh, yeah, we'll hope to see you guys soon. Thanks so much. Haha, you stuck around to hear the outtakes. Enjoy them. Your answer is exactly my feeling also that, you know, there's, you know, maybe we don't all need to go to college, right? And, and maybe the decline is okay, because it's going to push people in their passions and not just into college. And um, some of those folks who need those additional supports won't find their way into maybe a college track, but they'll find their way into a trade, which is just as lucrative. If you've tried to get a painter or a home <laughs> over the last year and a half, it's very challenging. So, you know, I mean, I, I, feel, I feel like Katie can do an encore of, of, of that. Okay. I can't. I, can't. <laughs> I believe you. I believe in you. It's going to come up so naturally. Just, just, just off the top of my head. Is that a thought? <laughs> Just like I, the coin toss, you lie. <laughs> it's lies, it's all lies. It's I, all facade. I am an only child, and I am very, very, very competitive. But I've tried to, I've tried to, I've worked really hard to not be a competitive <laughs> jerk. But like, I'm I like, would oh, never. I, I wanted to win that, that coin toss. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, oh, I try. Because I've worked very hard on being a nice diplomatic person. <laughs> I feel like I feel like you and I share that quality because I'm one of four yeah. girls, and we went to a. I'm also extremely competitive, and there's been a few family games where I make people <laughs> a little upset. I think I jumped on my sister with like she had just had surgery on some part of her leg, and she had I don't know. There was like a baby shower, and there was I had to go get something from her, and I like jumped on her. And she's like, "Gosh." Man. I'm sorry. I just wanted to win. Oh my god! <laughs> no, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I've spent a lot of time on improving my 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 soft skills in in life. Like I used to be absolutely terrified of, of public speaking because yeah. I have mild fluency disorder, and like in certain contexts, it just it would really trigger my anxiety. And um, and then I just started doing it, and now I present at a lot of conferences, and I teach in classes, and I, and I love it, and it's it's like my favorite thing. 
but yet there's that also simultaneous like stressor about it Mm -hmm. but yeah I I think it's and I think you know I think you you kind of said this earlier I don't think you mentioned it by name but the soft skill repertoire is Mm -hmm. incredibly important for us because you know BCBAs are not always looked at as the nicest people and that's an understatement so and it's unfortunate because I think again we, we we all know the BCBAs aren't the nice people. And it's like, yeah. schools don't spend enough time on, on those soft skills. They, they, they really don't, so. And it's yeah. because, <clears throat> a part of it is because the, we're you know beholden to the task list, right? And so if our programs want to be approved, we have to make sure that we're covering this much content area. And also, right. you know, as a university, we, you know, we can't just, keep adding courses to our programs because we want to, we feel like it's going to be a good course for them to take because people aren't going to come and pay for 50 credits in a master's program. And, you know, so that's part of it too. And and I think that we see that come out in so many different areas in our field. Like there's so many courses like cultural diversity and just like the soft professional skills that Mm. those would be courses that every university should put in place. But um, you know, we have to be careful with our credit numbers and we have to meet the hours for the, for the you know, um, verified course sequence. But I hope that as we get into task list six, more of that will start to come through because it is the conversation I have with my students from the moment I meet them. Our program focuses on collaboration because of exactly what I said. Like, I want you to be the behavior analyst that people want to work with, not run away from. You know, we yeah. we want to be the the MOs, not the AOs, right? As right. we would say, our field self reinforcing. See, and that's where I think a a a good professor can really make all the difference because even if it's not on the task list they they can weave in those conversations and end those moments and i think about myself and the number of anecdotal stories that i've told during a lecture on just the fundamental concepts but have gone into something like i'll do this thing where we, we talk about science right and we'll talk about that aba is a science and blah 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 and here's the definition but then i do like a little five minute soapbox about that science by definition revises itself and it's modern and it's progressive and that it's okay for science to not know the answer and that you know science gets attacked nowadays because you know how how, how how dare they not have the right answer the, the the first time but that is literally the strength of science and people don't understand that and so and so but the, the, those little moments i think are the difference between a professor who can really make the connection and embed that information and one who is just a task list robot who doesn't actually get to the yeah. the, the other stuff because you're because again your point's well taken there isn't enough time yeah. and you can't add more courses because no one wants to take a 50 right. credit you know, program where they can have a 30 credit program for the same degree. And I I think that online piece, when you have your traditional, traditional, I'm going to say in quotation marks, Mm. online, asynchronous, where everything is laid out for you, there's no deviation. It's, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. You don't get those opportunities the way that you do in the classroom where live synchronous instruction or live in-person instruction to have those moments to develop mm. those skills. And I, I think that is, at the end of the day, that's the critical component, right? Mm. It's easy to, I don't want to say easy, easy to learn the technical terms. It's harder to learn how to practice and be mm. compassionate, collaborative yeah. analysts. Culturally considerate. Right? Yeah. Mm. yeah. 
we, we were kind yeah. of talking about that when we were doing our continuing education course, that, you know, like embedding all of that, like cultural considerations, soft skills into all of our training because they're an ethics, you know, I feel like all of it should be embedded into almost every training because you can't separate it out. Yeah. And I mean, the yeah. ethics is a great example hmm. because there are so many shades of gray, right? Mm-hmm. And so to really like, to your point, Joe, is this, a, is this an ethical question? Yes or no? Okay. And then, but now why, and what's the shades of gray, you know, how do we talk about that in a meaningful way? Like, you know, through when I went to the program at Penn state, it was the same as you that I got my packet of DVDs and my PowerPoints and, you know, um, but there was no way for me to then say, but what if this? Yeah. Right. What if and I mean, a little bit with discussion, but back when I took it, I don't know that we had a discussion board. I could email the, the faculty member, but it wasn't the same immediately. You know, that immediately. Yeah, and I think like the uh, class sizes, if I recall at Penn State, there was like 300 people in the class or something. So even if you did make a post, I mean, it was hard to really have like, you know, and again, I think, I think that's another variable is something like the uh, class size, you know, is is if it's a standard class, I mean, it, it sounds like if it's a standard class size, if it's live and it's, you know, synchronous online, that might be pretty decently comparable to what you might get with, with in-person minus some of the hands-on stuff. But there are some ways to kind of overcome that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I might like back up because that was such a valuable conversation and either yeah. like do it as an outtake or like yeah. come up with a question and then like, artfully <laughs> put it into the next section because that was, I feel like that was all really important um and people yeah. need to hear that I think that's it that's everything you're done now you can go listen to one of our other podcasts check out our website check out our social media I really appreciate you all being here uh and for supporting our podcast go forth and deliver good ABA I don't want to do my homework I don't want to do the dishwasher at all. We know dinner. You know dinner? Ugh. Sometimes parenting is hard. How do I know I'm doing this right? I just want my kids to turn out okay. I wish I could talk this out with someone who won't judge me. You are not alone. We got you. We're enrolling in our next virtual parent support group right now at grandbehaviorservices.com. Laura does an awesome job. She's a BCBA and a mom, so she really gets it. I was in her group a while ago, and it was exactly the kind of validation and positivity that I really needed. It could help you. There's blog and parenting courses, too, so check it out. GrahamBehaviorServices.com I love you, Dad. I love you, too, buddy.